All right. Hope you have your Bibles with you this morning. <clears throat> more and more I run into uh, churches where people don't carry a Bible, and maybe on their phone or not at all, and I'm just very happy uh, that so many of you have your Bibles with you and look at God's Word with us as we go through it. I'm in Ezra chapter 8, verses 1 to 23. Ezra chapter 8, verses 1 to 23. Now, you'll remember Ezra is one of the men that God chose to go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, that was basically Zerubbabel's issue, but also to rebuild the worship system, and that's Ezra's issue because he's a very knowledgeable scribe. Now, he's been there once, and the first time he went, he took about 50,000 people with him. This is the second return, so he went back to Babylon. Now he gets to go back under a different king, this one is Artaxerxes, and under this king he goes back with maybe four or 5,000. But I want you to keep in mind that they are carrying with them uh, millions of dollars, in, in today's world anyway, millions of dollars of gold and silver and utensils for the temple. And let that be in your, in your mind in the background as we uh, prepare to go through this. In Psalm 147, verse 10, it says this, Speaking of God, he does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of men. Now, what that means basically is this. God is God, and everything else is less than God. And God is not at all impressed at what he sees at the Mr. Universe uh, competitions, where everybody's flexing and showing all their muscle. That doesn't impress God. He is also not impressed, like I am, when I watch the world's strongest men competitions, where they take these unbelievably heavy rocks and they set them up on a pedestal, or they're uh, deadlifting, uh, you know, things that are tied to merry-go-rounds and stuff like that. God is not at all impressed with that. It is also of no consequence to God how many methods of delivery that the United States has for her nuclear weapons around the world or how many bombs that we have. God is not impressed with the size of our arsenal, or that we have made, uh, or what we have made them to do, or what they will do. He's not impressed. So with that in mind, wondering about those great things and powerful things that God's not impressed with, let's bring it down to an individual level. So I want to ask this question this morning. So who would you pick to support you on a journey? And I'm going to give you a couple of options, all right? So you're going on a journey. Who would you choose to support you? Now, pretending like this would be something you could actually do. Would you choose the United States military to keep you safe on the way, maybe even escort you, or would you choose God? Now, most of us just uh, say we choose God because the military hasn't offered to go with us. But which one would you choose if you had uh, the ability to choose one of those? In whom would you put your faith? In whom would you trust? And if you choose God, are you really sure that he will show up and he will protect you on the way? Where is your faith, really? Where is your faith? Do you remember King Asa and what he did? Let me read that for you. We're not far from there. If you want to go to Second Chronicles 16. Asa was a guy that <clears throat> didn't learn from his mistakes when it came to serving God. And God had just told him, I'm looking for people to support, and Asa decided not to be one of those. And in verse 11 of Second Chronicles 16, Now the acts of, of Asa, that's King Asa, from the first to the last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek Yahweh but he sought the physicians. Now, what you need to understand is this. He completely ignored the God of Israel when he had this problem, and he completely put his focus on the physicians of the day to find some relief and some healing for this foot problem. And what I'm trying to bring that up for is what decision would you have made? How would you have handled that? Lots of us like to think about being in that safe middle area where, okay, I'm going to trust God, but I'm going to go to the doctor. I'm going to trust God, uh, but I'm also going to let God work through the doctor. That's how we get around that. And so we have both, both sides of what we think are good. Very seldom do we see people saying, I'm just going to trust God in this. 
or some people saying like Asa did, I'm just going to trust the physicians. I'm not going to trust anybody else. And that's the dilemma that we find ourselves in. Would you go out on a limb and make public your faith in God to protect you? Would you tell everybody, I'm going just with God. I'm not going to do anything else, just God. Whatever he does, he does. And God, we're, we're counting on you to protect us, to help us, to guide us over anything else we could choose in this world. Have you ever, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, put all your eggs in God's basket, done everything and said, you know what, we're just going to go with God on this and absolutely nothing or no one else. And you just relied on him and no other. And you remember what they said, O king, if God saves us, he saves us. If If he doesn't, we are still not going to worship your gods. We will still not bow down. So their idea going into it is we're trusting God. If he takes our life, he takes it. If he doesn't take our life, he doesn't take our life. And that's what we're going to stick with. All right, did you ever do that like those guys did? Did you ever make your decision public? On this, I'm going to trust God and no one else. And let's see what God does. Uh, he, could, he could trust God, and then he could help the physicians. That's true. He can, and he does. Or he, you could just trust in the physicians, and sometimes uh, they seem to turn out okay, and you get what you want. And you could choose not to trust God. The issue is, as a Christian, what should you do? What should I do? How should, we, how should we handle these things? Most of us, I guess, would probably say, I'll take the safer position in the middle. I'm going to trust God, and I'm going to trust these other people who have some control. And I would like to ask us this question then, is it really safer? Is it really safer to divide your allegiance in trust? Now, uh, in this book of Ezra and also in Nehemiah, we are going to run into a lot of places where there's lots of lists of names. And I know that sometimes it's hard for us to read those genealogies and we get all discouraged because the names are hard to pronounce. And I mostly have skipped all of that. I'm not going to skip it today because I want to be able to say you have the flavor of what's going on. And it's important. It was important to Ezra, and it should be important to us. So I'm going to read chapter 8, verses 1 to 23, and I hope you'll follow along with me. And here's what it says. I'm going to use Lord as Yahweh's name as we read through, because it's his Hebrew name. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of our fathers. Oh, and I started in verse uh, 27 of chapter 7. I will now go to where I said I would be. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Sorry about that. See, I get so excited, I just can't want to read. I just want to read it all, right? Now, these are the heads of their father's households and the genealogical enrollment of those who went up with me, that's Ezra, from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes. Now, the other king was Cyrus. He's gone. Now he's under Artaxerxes, and he's trying to go back to the land. He has, he has a plan what he wants to do there. Verse 2, now he's going to list, start listing some people that were involved in going back. And the sons of Phineas, Gershom, the son of Ithamar, Daniel, and the son of David, Hatush, and the son of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Parash, Zechariah, with him, 150 males who were in the genealogical list. So we already understand he's not naming everybody. He's naming the heads of the families, those who are in authority over the different clans of Israel. Verse 5, of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and 300 males with him. And of the sons of Aden, Evid, and the son of Jonathan, and 50 males with him. And of the sons of Elam, Jeshaiah, and the son of Athaliah, and 70 males with him. And the sons of Shephatiah, and Zabadiah, and Zebediah, the son of Michael, and 80 males with him. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and 218 males with him. And of the sons of Bani, Shalomith, the sons of Josephath, and and 160 males with him. And of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and 28 males with him. And of the sons of Osgod, Johanan, and the son of Hachatan, and 110 males with him. And of the sons of Adon, Akim, and of these last ones, being their names, Eliphelet, Jeuel, Shemaiah, and 60 males with them. And of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zabud, and 70 males with them. 
Now I assembled them at the river that runs to Ahava. There we were camped for three days. And when I observed the people and the priests, I did not find a Levite among them. So I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shimeiah, El Nathan, Yarib, El Nathan, now there's obviously people with the same name, Nathan, Zechariah, Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyarib and El Nathan, teachers. All right, so he goes on. I sent them to Idu, the leading man at the place of Casiphia, and I told them what to say to Idu and his brothers, the temple servants at the place of Casiphia, that is, to bring ministers to us for the house of our God. According to the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of insight, the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah and his sons, brothers, 18 men. And Hashabiah and Jeshaiah and the sons of Merari and his brothers and their sons, 20 men. And 220 of the temple servants whom David and the princes have, had given for the service of the Levites, all of them designated by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God and seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and for all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against those who forsake him. Now, what Ezra is doing is he's telling you, this is why I didn't ask the king for help. Because I stuck my neck out and I said, God takes care of those who are doing what God wants them to do. And so I was ashamed of asking the king for help. So he didn't. So now it's by faith. That's why they're fasting. That's why they're praying. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter. And he listened. Get that? And he listened to our entreaty. And he says that again down in verse 31 when we get to that next time. Well, let's look at this a little bit. In verse 1, the men here represent major families in Israel. Some had relatives go back to Jerusalem in 537 B.C. with Zerubbabel, and now new people are going with Ezra. So with Ezra, he's already been once, he's come back, and he's going to go again. Zerubbabel went, and then he stayed there because Zerubbabel is the one who built the temple. All right, Nehemiah is the one that builds the wall. Ezra is the guy that's going to set Israel's worship in order and make sure everything is done in the temple the way that it should be. And he also wants to bring some beauty to the temple of God and make it a little more presentable as people go there, if you will. So Ezra was granted permission. And by the way, there's a miracle in and of itself. Here's a man working for a foreign pagan king who does not worship Yahweh, and he's asking him, I want to go back, I need some money, and I also need uh, some people to go with me. And Artaxerxes said, I'm going to grant that to you. So he granted permission uh, to go to Jerusalem, and he wants, uh, he wants to adorn the Lord's house. Not Artaxerxes, but Ezra. Ezra is also going to put in order the worship of Yahweh. We have talked over and over about the fact that God doesn't just say, worship any old way you want, do whatever you want to do in worship. God never said that. God has always said, this is how I want you to do worship. This is what I want in worship. This is what I don't want in worship. And this should never be in worship. And this should always be in worship. And that's always been from the beginning of time. Ezra is a man of the book, the book of the law of God. He is going back to make sure that they do everything by the book. Why? Because when you stop doing things by the book, the enemy gets a foothold in your church and you start to lose favor with God because now you're pleasing people more than you please God. And also other gods sneak in. And if we keep the religion pure, if we do it God's way, then we are going to be safe from those things. That's why. Artaxerxes is uh, paying the bill for all the renovations and the trip and whatever else Ezra determines that they will need. That's a miracle. Now, some people, I just had this conversation with somebody in Oregon the other day, and they said, well, God's people never solicit or take money uh, from unbelievers, and that isn't true. 
They do it here, and they've done it other places. They'll do it with Nehemiah. And it's not that we should never accept money from outsiders to do something with the ministry. It's not that at all. It's our motivation and their motivation that counts as to whether or not we do that. He has gathered some pretty impressive people for this trip. That's the point of the genealogy. Here he gives the genealogical record of those who returned with him. The first return, we said about 50,000 people. This return, four or 5,000 people with him. And in verses 2 to 14, I will spare you by not reading it again. You can thank me later. Here is the record of those who went with Ezra, who want to return to a closer relationship with God. That's why they were going back. Now, there's debate over this, but there should be no temple at all in the land of, of the Persians in Babylon. There shouldn't be a temple of God there because the only temple should be built in Jerusalem. So all this time they're up in Babylon and now in the land of Persia, now under Artaxerxes, they have no temple. You couldn't worship God in the way you wanted to be worshipped as a body of, of, of the family of God if you didn't have a temple. If you don't have a temple, you don't have a way to worship God the way he wanted to, uh, himself to be worshipped. So all these people now have a chance. How would you like to make a trip eight or 900 miles and go to a place where we can get back to worshiping God the way he said to be worshiped in a place he wants to be worshiped that he chose and do the things he wants you to do? Surprisingly, not everybody said, I want to go. Surprisingly, some people said, you know, I enjoy it here in the pagan world of Babylon and I'm comfortable here, and we just want to stay. But there were thousands of people who said, thank God, we have a way to go back, and I want to go back, and I want to do it right. And I want to be where, where, the, where the Spirit of God dwells, in the Holy of Holies, and I want to worship him there. And so these people voluntarily went. I wonder what we would do if we were given that opportunity uh, to go back, because it's going to cost you something to get there. You're going to leave people behind, probably never see them again to go and be where God wants you to be. Well, uh, there are names in here. Let me just mention a few. Gershom and Ithamar were both descendants of Israel's high priest, Aaron, Moses' brother. Now, I just threw in there Exodus 6.25 to show you a place where it says Moses and Aaron were brothers. You already know that. And there's lots of people named Gershom. In fact, one of Moses' sons was Gershom. And uh, this is... Not, this, I'm sorry, Abraham uh, had a descendant named that. And also, um, I mean, I'm sorry, Moses and Aaron are brothers. Moses had a son named Gershom. This isn't him. We read about Zechariah. It's not the Zechariah that was the prophet. And so there's many important people here. Some people think that the David that is mentioned here represents King David of the Bible. All right, they represent here men who are heads of large families. They have authority over their families in Israel. They, their sons, and sometimes their brothers are mentioned as joining this pilgrimage. So there's lots of people who want to go back. Some of these names here are popular Bible names like Zechariah, but this is not Zechariah the prophet, who we know is already back in Israel at this time, so he couldn't be coming back again. He's already there, and he stayed there. Now let's go to verses 15 to 20. So here he is at Ahava by the canal, and he assembles all these people together that is, that is going to go with him and go back to Israel. They're about a three-day's journey outside of Babylon, and so they're all encamped out there, and they're waiting uh, for Ezra to put things together so they can go. And we learn in verses 15 through 20, Ezra notices the absence of teachers of the law and those who can serve in the temple. Ezra looks around and he says, okay, I've got priests. They'll be doing the sacrificing. But as I look, I don't find any Levites. I don't find those that are going to be helpers of the priests, teachers of the people, scholars of the word of God. And that's what I'm going back to do. I want to get worship going again. You can't get worship going unless those people are with you. They have to go back, and they have to teach people. So he looks around, and he says, I don't have any Levites here. I've got to have some people who can teach the word of God. I can't do it all myself. I'm sure he thought that as well. So he assembled that troop of people outside of Babylon there, somewhere uh, around that, anywhere from three to eight miles away. We really don't know because we can't find Ahava. We can't find the canal. 
Archaeology hasn't discovered it yet. But that's where they're preparing to take off on their trip to Jerusalem. And we, we still, to this day, don't know exactly where they were. But archaeologists know that it was out there and it was by a canal. We just haven't found it. And as he looks around the camp of his travelers, he realizes, I don't have teachers of the law. What he is planning on doing in the temple, he needs people who have knowledge about worship, knowledge about the law of God, and conduct worship and be able to teach the people. They need teachers. They need worship leaders. They need temple servants and other people to carry on the religion of God our Father. So Ezra sends 11 men to complete a mission. Nine are leading men, and two of them are known as being teachers. And that happened, as we read in verse 16. So Ezra sends them to the leader of a place called Casiphia, and his name is Idu. Some think that there was some sort of a Jewish temple uh, that was in Casiphia, but we haven't been able to prove that. If it was, it shouldn't have been there. Because God said, I chose you to worship in Jerusalem, and that's all I want you to worship in. So some think that was there. We're just going to have to say we don't know as of yet. But for some reason, there were Levites there, and lots of them. And their message to him is that they are to take ministers for the house of God to Ezra, and they are to move to Jerusalem. In verse 18, Ezra gives credit to God for returning some very good men from Casiphia who were Levites. And so Idu did it. He sent some people, some quality people of God. And we are not told about Sherebiah, but we know that he will be one of the leaders in the temple worship. And he is also known as a quality man who has insight. And that's what we're looking for, a quality man who has insight. And he is one. So God is actively giving them some good people who know what they're doing, and they're going to help them when they go back. God is actively engaged in supplying the right people that they need to carry out the ministries that God has ordained for them to do. This is all happening because God's good hand is upon them. And that happens over and over in the book of Ezra. We read about it there in verse 18. The good hand of our God was upon us. We aren't there yet, but you drop down to verse 31. And the good hand of God was over us. See, when you're praying for the day, when you get up in the morning and you're praying, that God will help you and be with you. What you're asking is that God would put his hand on you and on your day and direct it the way he wants it to go. That would mean success for your ministry and what you're trying to do for God in whatever occupation you might have. It simply means that God will be in control, blessing them with what they need and what we need. That is also true. When God's good hand is upon us, the ministry goes well according to what God decides is well and good, and he supplies us with what we need to be successful in that ministry. Now, I'm assuming that these are people that are not living in sin. They're not defying God by what they do. I'm assuming these are people that want to please God, and just like we want to please Jesus, so that's why we pray that prayer, Jesus, use me today. You know, we don't know how much time we have left. Um, Probably many of us will pass away a physical death before Jesus comes in the rapture, but maybe not. We don't know. Are you taking advantage, am I taking advantage of every minute of every day to serve the ministry of Jesus Christ? That's the issue. And these are all men from families that were assigned by David to do specific service in the temple of God, And they will do the work that their forefathers did. And they will carry on the ministry of Jesus Christ. We always need people to fill in where others have been taken and and are no longer here. In verses 21 to 23, we learn that by faith we trust in God for our protection, guidance, and success in ministry. Now, I'm looking at this from a spiritual standpoint, right? But there's all kinds of issues in life where we need to figure out, am I going to trust God in doing this, or am I going to trust something or someone else? And that's the issue in front of us here at this time. The band, or the troop of travelers, in verse 21, fasted and prayed about their long and difficult trip. I don't know what you do, but uh, normally if Noel and I are going any distance at all, uh, we, we bow and we pray 
And now we include a lot in our prayers. Lord, please don't let deer run into our car anymore. Uh, and we had prayed at the morning the deer last ran into our car. It was God's choice, I guess, that they did. But we pray that we would be safe. Uh, we pray that we wouldn't hit black Angus cows in the middle of the road at night. Uh, we pray all kinds of stuff because we would like God's hand on us to get us where we're going and to get us back safely. These people had all their women and children with them on the trip. That's pretty precious cargo. And I'm sure when your kids are uh, in their car seats in your car, you pray and ask God for protection. They're also carrying a tremendous amount of temptation for bandits and robbers on the way to come and take the gold, the silver, and the utensils that they carried on this journey. Back in chapter 7, verse 22, we found out there was, in our day, would be millions and millions of dollars worth of gold and silver and utensils that this four to 5,000 people are going to be taking with them on an eight to 900-mile trip. Now, that's where you'd like to have some help. They were literally praying for a straight way. Look at verse 21. Then I, Ezra, proclaimed a fast there by the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him, and my new American says, a safe journey. Now that's in Hebrew going to mean a straight way for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. We really need to get this gold and silver back to Jerusalem. We need to get these utensils back where they belong. We'd like to show up with our kids still alive and our wives still alive. So let's humble ourselves. Let's fast. Let's go without food while we pray. And let God know how serious we are about this. And then let's, let's trust him for the dangers of the road. The Jews called this kind of a prayer for the road the Tefaloth Haderic. The Tefaloth Haderic. And when they prayed, they would pray for that. Those are the words in verse 21, in verse 21 here in the Hebrew text. Verse 22, this verse tells us that Ezra was ashamed to ask the king's military escort for the trip. Now, this is based on a statement of faith that Ezra made to the king. He says, I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way because we might say today, I opened my big mouth and said, God's going to protect us, God will take care of us, and basically the meaning is we don't need anything from you. Now, he didn't put them in those, those words, but that's what he's feeling. He says, I didn't ask for protection from the enemy because we had said to the king, we put our faith on the line, and we said, here's what we're going by. The hand of our God, there's that word again, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So Ezra stepped up to the plate and he said, King, I don't want your troops. I don't want your military. We're going to go on this trip with a bunch of women and children and, you know, money that's going to be hard to hide from anybody while we're on the way. And we're going to trust God that we're going to get all the way back. And we're going to get there with our wives, our children, and all this gold and silver that the king has given them and the utensils from the temple that had not made the trip yet. And by way of reminder, I just want you, as you think about, well, what am I going to do? Am I just going to trust in God, or am I going to trust in God and the king and his power, or am I going to forget God and just trust in the king? All of us would be able to say, well, that last one is wrong. We don't ever not trust God. But the other two, we're not sure about. And so there's other things that happen. If I go to Nehemiah, which is going to be our next book, uh, another one who returned to the land. And I go to chapter 2, verse 9. Nehemiah 2, 9. I read, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So here's a man of God loves God, does the things of God, as Ezra is a man of God. Ezra says, no, we're not going to take any help. We're just totally going to go with God on this. Nehemiah had some of the king's military leaders, and he had warriors with him to protect him on his trip. So is Nehemiah less godly than Ezra? Or is Ezra more godly than Nehemiah? Because Ezra just went with God, and Nehemiah didn't. And so you need to take that into account. Ezra may have had, someone has speculated, because Isaiah wrote to the kingdom of Judah, so he would have been gone by now. 
Uh, but in Isaiah, if you want to look with me, Isaiah 52 and verse 12. I, even I, this is God speaking, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who, di- who dies and of the son of man who is made like the grass? Now, let me read 52.12. So I read one that goes with it. Here we go. But you will not go out in haste, nor will I give you as fugitives, for Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. That's a verse that really belongs to the millennial kingdom, but it had meaning in Isaiah's day, and some say, I I just think that Ezra knew that, and he took it for him. God's going to guard us on the way, so let's do it. We don't know. We just don't know, because it doesn't say. The truth of the Bible is certainly along these lines. Psalm 124, verse 8 says, Our help is in the name of Yahweh who made heaven and earth. And that's what we need to know. Our real help is in Jesus. And it is really in no one else. That's where our real help comes from. And he said, I'm ashamed to ask the king now that I've said I'm totally trusting in God. And that word ashamed here means to bring an offense against decency or correct conduct. Now, it's also used in Psalm 119, 116. And I want to read that. Psalm 119 and verse 116, where the psalmist says, Sustain me according to your word that I may live, and do not let me be ashamed. That's the same word as our text in Ezra. Do not let me be ashamed of my hope. There is that sense that as spiritual people, we put all of our faith in God and say whatever God wants to do, he can do. And I'm not going to trust anything else. I'm just going to trust God. Now, friends, that's a decision of the heart. That's a decision that we make and we say, I'm sticking with it. That doesn't mean that God can't bring a physician in or God can't bring somebody else in to help with a different problem. It doesn't mean God can't do that. That could be God's will. But when it comes right down to it, my help is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. And it's not really on anybody or anything else. It is on God. We cannot put our faith out there like like he did before Artaxerxes and put our faith on the line, and then go back on our word to trust God, can we? But I see people do it all the time. When they say, I'm going to trust God completely on this, and then things get rough, or they go tough, or it's not going the direction you think, they bail out, and they try to grab at something for help that there really is no help in, because our faith is in God. My dad likes to say, a drowning man grabs at straws. And if you're going down and you see something floating, even though it's not substantial, even though it doesn't give help, you grab it, even a piece of straw, and it breaks and it cracks and it goes down with you. We have to be careful about how we use God's name. If I say I'm going to trust in God, then it has to be the God of the Bible, and I want to add something else to that. We are never to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. What does it mean, according to that passage in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, where we have the Ten Commandments, don't take the name of, your Lord, of the Lord your God in vain? It means don't take the name of God with emptiness. Emptiness. In other words, as a Christian, I don't attach the name of God to things that are empty, valueless, of no help. So I don't take his name in vain. I would never then say, God called me to do this, and then God doesn't call me. I've taken the name of the Lord in vain. When I say God wants me to do this, and then I don't do it, or it doesn't get done, I've taken the name of God in vain. If I say, I'm just going to trust God for my trip, and King, I, I appreciate your offer, but I don't need any of your military strength. I'm just trusting God. He'll take care of those who love him. And then just before we go, I message the king and say, hey, you know, I've, I've reconsidered. It might be good to have a few military people with us. You've taken the name of God in vain. Don't tell people, uh, I'm going to do this. God wants me to do it, and then don't do it. 
you took the name of God in vain. You, you associated his name with emptiness. And here we're talking about not being ashamed of what I said. And that is, uh, I'm, I'm not going to go back on what I said and be ashamed of myself because I took the name of the Lord God in vain. If we have placed our faith in him, we should stick with it. And by the way, there's no other place you really should put your faith. Remember the three Hebrew children in the furnace who were committed to the fact that God could save them, but he didn't have to in order to retain their allegiance. They said, you know what? God might save us. God might choose not to save us. And I'm going to read that here in a second. But whatever God decides, we're still going to love him and trust him, and we're not going to go back on what we said. So you might head into some kind of a life-threatening illness and say, I'm just going to trust in God. Now, God might interject some medical people in there, but my trust is still in God. And God might take away my life, but my trust is still in God. And this is what those, those young men did. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Because he said, why aren't you worshiping the image that I set up? And they told one of the greatest kings of all time, we don't have to give you an answer. <laughs> That's going to cost them. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us from out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. One of the things I think that is very key to your decision and my decision about am I going to trust God completely is, is it okay with you if God, if you trust in God, if he doesn't go the direction you want him to go? Is it okay with you that he has a different thing in mind for you than you have in mind? Like you might be thinking of your complete healing and he's got another situation in mind. Or you're thinking this is my demise and God is thinking, no, it's not, and I'm going to sustain you. If you're going to go with God, then God has to be in control. And you can't bail out on him when something starts to go in a direction that you didn't want it to go. I also want to remind you of what James said about the issue of saying what God's going to do or doesn't do or what you want to do or want, don't want to do uh, in the will of God in James 4, 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears a little while, then it vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is a sin. In other words, the attitude James wants us to have is, I'm going to trust God, and if he makes my business really flourish this next year in that town, wonderful. If he takes it all away, wonderful. I can't make the decision that God is going to make. But I can decide to trust him fully in everything that I need to make a decision about. I was saddened when Tim Tebow, who I admire, was so vocal about saying to people, it's God's will that I be an NFL quarterback. It obviously was not God's will. And he shouldn't have put God's name on something that was vain and empty because it didn't happen. He also said that God told him he would be a major league baseball player. That didn't happen either. God didn't do any of those. I want to make sure I don't attach God's name to something that is vain. Instead, I would have said, if it's God's will and I want to be, an NFL quarterback. If it's God's will, I will be a Major League Baseball star. That's a lot different. But friends, when I cast myself on the arms of God, 
whatever happens is in his control, and he is good. There are times where we put our faith in God and on the line for all to see, like Ezra did. If you're going to trust God, tell somebody about it. It'll encourage them as they watch what God does. So I want to end with these, uh, these kinds of things about faith. And I think you have a place in your bulletin if you want to write them down. Faith in God is better than an army. Faith in God is better than all the military might in the world. Faith in God is better than faith in men or women. Faith is God. Uh, faith is good. Faith in God is good than all the money and possessions of the world. Faith in God is better than our very life. I am sure beyond doubt, God does not need any help for anything that he wants to accomplish. And by the way, we could say, God, I'm not going to trust you in this. I found something else to trust. And it's going to turn out exactly as God wanted it to turn out anyway. But we made a bad decision. I didn't come right out and say what you ought to do. I've come right out and said these are the things you need to think about. And you need to make a decision for yourself. As you stand before God one day, he's going to want to know if you trusted in something else, why you didn't trust in him. Or if you said you were going to trust in him and then you didn't. Or that you even considered to trust something else besides God in the first place. Number one, I want you to know that God doesn't use his power to get us out of what he wants us into. God does not use his power to get us out of what he wants us into. You remember Matthew 26, 53? <laughs> Peter, in the middle of the night, just got through cutting off Malchus's ear because they'd come to arrest Jesus. <laughs> Jesus heals the guy's ear and tells Peter, put the sword away. What are you thinking? That's a great question. Because Peter was still trying to stop the reason Jesus came. And that was to die on the cross. Jesus spent a night sweating drops of blood, accepting, accepting the Father's will, which was his death, a horrible death, a painful death. And he tells Peter, put the sword away. And then he asks Peter, uh, obviously enough so others could hear, uh, Peter, let me just ask you a little question here. Do you think for one second that if I wanted to get out of this, I couldn't ask the Father and instantly, and if you add it up, Jesus said, I would have 72,000 angels here to make sure this doesn't happen. doesn't record his answer because Peter didn't have a good answer for that except yeah I was wrong I wonder do you see the spiritual side of these things that you're trying to do and we look at the circumstances and then we make a decision based on that and we make the wrong decision because it looks like it's too big of a deal friends there's nothing that is out of control for God nothing he can't do Secondly, for faith in God to be true, it has to be put into action. You can't say you have faith and then act like you don't. Thirdly, Ezra didn't ask for human help to somehow bolster or fall back on if God didn't come through. He made his choice, and he let God be God. Whatever God wanted to happen, he let happen. And finally this, we must be solid on the foundation that God could, but it is up to him if he will save or if he will deliver. We have to let God be God. These are difficult issues. They're things that we face all the time. Our biggest problem is seeing what's in front of us, the physical stuff and not the spiritual stuff that is ever more powerful. Let's pray about that. Our Father and our God, we admit 
But sometimes we make our decisions by calculating, going through the different scenarios, trying to figure out what we can get by with or what we can't, trying to figure out where we'll be the safest or maybe make the most money or have the most fun. Whatever, whatever crazy things we use to make decisions, we often fail to see where you're at and what you're capable of. And the fact that even though we have an enemy that fights against us, there are untold numbers of elect angels that you use to help us in doing our ministry, in living, in loving, in caring, and encouraging others, that we have help that we do not see. So we focus on the wrong thing. We ask your forgiveness for when we do that and pray that you would help us to start focusing on that which is true. And what is true is that we serve a God for whom nothing is impossible. Help us to be those kinds of people that trust in you. And I ask it in Jesus' precious and holy name on each of our behalf. Amen. You would please stand and open your hymnal to number 29. We will close by singing Glorify Thy Name. Father, uh, indeed, may we glorify your name by the live, uh, lives we live, uh, by the trust that we show in you. May we all put our confidence in you. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.